Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for October 2014. I recently went to the Old Vic to meet journalist and writer Terry Coleman, whose many previous books include The Authorised Life of Laurence Olivier, to talk to him about a building and an institution whose history dates back almost two centuries. The Old Vic has a place in national cultural life with few rivals, all the more surprising when you bear in mind it's not a state-funded enterprise. The Old Vic has had to forge its own identity over the years, and the story Terry tells is full of highs and lows, triumphs and disasters, characters much larger than life on and off stage. Theatres thrive on legends, he writes, and that is abundantly so in the case of the Old Vic. Terry Coleman traces the story of this theatre, built speculatively, optimistically, to entice audiences south of the Thames in 1818 and of the many colourful figures who have appeared on its stage or shaped its destiny behind the scenes. These include the redoubtable Lillian Bayliss, who in the early part of last century set the theatre on its course to becoming a national theatre in all but name. Her aunt Emma Cons, who for the 32 years before Bayliss presided over the old Vic when it was a temperance hall. And before them, a whole string of impresarios, many of whom were brought to financial ruin by trying to turn a profit. It also includes Laurence Olivier, who began his career as a serious actor in this theatre, and later ran the new National Theatre there, before it moved to its new home on the South Bank in the mid-70s. And, of course, Kevin Spacey, who, Terry Coleman suggests, has played as significant a part in the theatre's recent renaissance as Lillian Bayliss almost a century before. When Terry and I met in the dress circle bar one afternoon recently, with the sounds of theatre life in the background, I began by asking him what sort of sight would have greeted us if we'd ventured south of the river across the new Waterloo Bridge in 1818. We would have found ourselves in a marsh with a great Grecian classical church being built some 200 yards south of the bridge, and then we would have come across a brand new classical theatre, really rather handsome, and it would incidentally have been surrounded by mud. If you look at old prints, you will see that's just what it, what it was. It's rather a very grand classical theatre, and around it, people sloshing through mud and carriages, sort of edging their way, making ridges of mud. So it would have felt rather adventurous, would it, coming, coming to the theatre down here? Well, the proprietor would have hoped that people would think it an adventure. And up to a point it would have been, because even when the bridge was built, when it was finished, and the theatre was built here because of the bridge, because customers could come, do you see, um, from north of the Thames, even then it was a bit hairy, because after dusk there were plenty of rubbers around, it was one of the selling points of this theatre that uh, there were linkmen, guards, as it were, with torches to guide the audience across the bridge. So building a theatre back then was rather an act of optimism. Yes, you were hoping for an act of God. You were hoping for, 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 for an audience. Yes, it was. Uh, this wasn't the first theatre to be built south of the river. Um, there was the Surrey, which was built... Um, in Blackfriars, what is now Blackfriars Road, so people would have, the audience would come up black, across Blackfriars Bridge. Then there was another theatre over Astis, theater, which was just on the southern part of, of Westminster Bridge. 
this is the only one that survives. Obviously, when it when it was built, there was no thought of it having a long life. No one envisaged it becoming a, a national icon. It was simply a, a speculatively put up theatre, which you know could have been torn down in, in a, a few decades' time. Yes, most most theatres were, were either torn down in a few decades' time, or they burned down. They quite frequently burned down, or they just got worn out. This is a very lucky theatre to be surviving. This is in every way a lucky theatre. Uh, theatres built then don't survive. This, is this the only one? Um, Covent Garden, of course, is there, but Covent Garden has been rebuilt at least twice. Drury Lane, rebuilt at least once. Um, this is, this is been damn fortunate to survive. Around the world, it's very rare for theatres to accumulate quite so much history and character because often theatres change name or change function and, and sort of lose sight of their, their origins. But this is a theatre which, although it's changed function, has really accumulated, as I say, some sort of sense of what it what its place is in, in the city's well, life. You see, it's done both. It, it, it has survived and it has accumulated a, a reputation and, 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 and a history and it's now almost a brand. The old Vic is known all around the world, particularly in the United States. But it's changed enormously. It, it was built for melodrama. Plays like Black Eyed Susan, um, plays later like Sweeney Todd the Demon Barber. It was built for that. Only much later on um, did it produce anything which you could call remotely classical. Um, we've, we've got melodrama from 1818 up to, up, up to about 1870. And then a man with the unlikely name of Romain Delator, an impresario, was much struck with the success of the Alhambra musical in Leicester Square and he thought that he would replicate that south of the river and attract many thousands and, 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 and make his fortune. He bought the old Victoria Theatre, he kept the outside walls, but he ripped out the auditorium and in 12 weeks, 12 weeks, he had rebuilt the entire auditorium as it, until it was, as you see today, a glorious auditorium full of um, those delightful cast iron pillars and, and gilt and uh, everything. It was, it was quite extraordinary. He, in his turn, went bankrupt after three years and was sold out for £820, having spent the better part of £100,000 of other people's money. And then, and only then, did Emma Collins come along with her Christian principles, um, wanting a temperance hall. Emma Collins was here for 32 years from 1880. Not once in that, 30, that period of 32 years did she put on a single play. She didn't have a theatrical license. She didn't want one. There were meetings, prayer meetings. There were lectures at a penny a time. There were song recitals, um, operatic recitals. But in all her time, not a, not a single play. And what happened after that? Well, Emma Cons had a niece, um, Lillian Bellis. Now, Lillian Bellis had been a sort of assistant manager, uh, at first starting on a pound a week. And Lillian Bellis, within months of her aunt um, dying, um, got a th theatre license. 
extraordinary. And she put on oh, film shows and she put on plays of no particular sort, not Shakespeare. She, of course, is credited with the old Vicks having become the principal Shakespeare Theatre in London, which it certainly did be become. But, but it, it, it wasn't Lillian Bailey's idea, and indeed she first opposed it. The first Shakespeare here was, was put on by a woman called Rosina Philippi, who was a rather fading actress, uh, who had nevertheless very grand ideas. She wanted a, a people's national theatre. She also wanted plays in which her 16-year-old daughter could start. So she comes along to Lillian Bayless with, with an idea for a Shakespeare season. Lillian Bayless doesn't want the, that at all, but the governors of the house, which was a, a trust, a charitable um, trust, said, well, give her a try. So Rosina Philippi was, was given a try. She put on the first um, Shakespeare here in 1912, 1913 but was allowed to produce only two or three other uh, Shakespeare plays before Lillian Bayless got rid of her. There was no love lost between those two women. And then a very strange thing happened, which was another great piece of luck. The date is 1914, the First World War. Now, who should come back from the United States but a man called Ben Greet? He was a, a, an actor manager who had spent the previous 10 or 12 years tatting around the United States. Yale, Harvard, Stanford, the White House, you name it. He, he would be there with his Shakespeare company. But he came from a naval family and he had a sense of duty. And come the war, he came back to England and he was by then too old to do anything for the Navy. But he wasn't too old, he felt to put on patriotic play. So he came along to Lillian Bayless and offered f for nothing, for nothing, free, um, to put on the Shakespeare plays which he'd been putting on as he chatted around America. And he did, and he stayed throughout the war putting on, oh, many, many um, Shakespeare plays. Uh, indeed, the repertory of this theatre in which we are now sitting was the repertoire was quite bloody amazing. Today we put on, what, five, six plays a year? In the first six months of 1915, they put on something like 15 plays by Shakespeare and 15 grand operas. We're talking a very Puccini Montan. And so they, the rehearsal time was, was necessarily very ah, short. Ah, ah, well, you should have talked to... Been embarrassed about rehearsal times. Nowadays, people rehearse for months. Um, it has become the tradition to rehearse for months. Every actor wants to rehearse for months. Every director wants to rehearse for months. Now, Lillian Bayless wanted to keep things, um, shall we say, in proportion. She hated critics. And one of her reasons for hating critics, as she said, was that they come here and they sit here for two or three hours and they listen to one, of, to one of my plays and then they damn something which has taken my actors a whole week to put together. Lillian Bayless hated critics. It also seems that she hated spending money that she didn't have to. She was one of nature's scrimpers. There was a famous story which 
Abraham says that she used to pray and there's no doubt about her prayerfulness. She, she, she was constantly praying to God. And there's a, there's a story, and more than a story, a legend, that she would pray to God saying, please, God, send me a leading man and send him cheap. Now, 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 this is, I have to say, legend. It's been repeated again and again and again. It was first written down, it was first recorded in writing by Sybil Thorndike's brother. And then later on, Laurence Olivier put it in his memoirs and thereupon it was set in stone. But well, she was mean, there's no doubt about it. But obviously a woman of incredible energy because latterly she wasn't just running this theatre, she was running Sadler's Wells. So she was responsible for putting on opera as well as theatre as well as ballet, which is astounding. Well, it is astounding. First of all, um, um, this place, the, the Old Vic Theatre, never mind said as well, the Old Vic Theatre at first was as much an opera house as it was a theatre. That, that, that's, that's almost unknown today. But it, it's really important. Until Sadler's Wells came along, um, which was in the late 20s, this was, you know, this, this, this was grand opera house. But Sadler's Wells did come along, and it came along um, because she insisted on it, because she campaigned for it, because she begged for it, because she scraped for it. Yes, and she did run both Sadler's Wells and, and, and Elvick. There's a story that she was once in, in, in a car crash, and she was, you know, it wasn't badly hurt, but she was knocked about a bit, and, and the ambulance members came along and were moving her. And her secretary, who had been in the same car, said to the ambulance man, be, be careful, be careful, that's Lillian Bayless of, of, of the old Vic. And, and Lillian Bayless sort of, sort of came to and said, and of sad as well. Uh, yeah. I love the stories in your book about transferring the sets and the costumes north of the river, you know, between, between houses. Well, at, at first, when Sadler's Wells came along, they, uh, well, Sadler's Wells later, of course, became the opera, the house for opera and ballet, and leaving the old Vic as, 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 as a theatre. But at first, for the first two, three years, they tried to do both opera and ballet in, 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 at both places. And that meant they had to cart the sets across the Thames, on a, most, for the most part, on wheelbarrows. Um, they used to get wheeled over Blackfriars Bridge. That, of course, did the sets no good at all. They got knocked about. And one set um, from a very opera whose name I can't now really just remember. On one occasion, transfer was being made in a high wind. The, the, the set sort of flew up from the barrow and landed in the Thames. Would it be fair to say, Terry, that it was under Lillian Bayless that the theatre really developed a sense of mission and a real sense of its itself in the cultural life of the capital. Yes, I think I think that's true. She did, of course, take the credit for a great deal that was done by others, in particular by, by, by Ben Greet. But without her utter determination, without, she was a monomaniac. And you need a monomaniac 
to do anything as rash as think you could run a classical theatre and a Shakespeare theatre south of the Thames. It's clear all the way through the book that you need very deep pockets. Whatever else you need, you need very deep pockets in order to, to take on a place like this. Well, to, 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 to run any theatre. Actually, this, this theatre was, was run with the utmost frugality. It was, of course, lucky because in the 20s and 30s, there wasn't really that much Shakespeare in the West End. I know that Gilgood in 1931 had a f famous um, season, and there were undoubtedly other, uh, other plays by Shakespeare in the West End, but, but not nearly so many as, as there are today. So what happened was that if, if an actor wanted to make a reputation, he found that he had to make a reputation in the great roles of Shakespeare, and the only place he could do that was at the Old Vic. One of them was Laurence Olivier. And uh, Olivier, in 36, 37, said to himself, I'm going to be a great actor. In order to be a great actor, I have to do the great Shakespearean roles. The only place I can do those is the Old Vic. I shall go to the Old Vic. Um, and he did and he came he he was known then you see and not, not, not at all as a classical actor he was a sort of matinee idol so he was a swashbuckler um he had spent two two seasons very young in in, in hollywood and then he came back here and, and and made his made his made his reputation not as a classical actor at all but he wanted to be a classical actor so he came here and he came here for one twentieth of what he could earn uh, in the cinema and his, his notices, it would be fair to say, were rather mixed at the beginning, weren't they? But he stuck at it. He was determined. His notices were certainly mixed. He was a very um, physical kind of actor. Um, I mean, his, his Romeo was often compared with, with uh, John Gilgood's. Um, there was no doubt that uh, Gilgood um, spoke the verse most beautifully. Uh, I mean, he was always praised for that. But there was some doubt whether, in, in Romeo and Juliet, whether, quite honestly, having won Juliet, Juliet he'd know what, quite what to do with her. Um, there was no doubt at all about when, when you came to Laurence Olivier. His was the most virile performance, and his speaking of the verse was bitterly criticised, yes. He seems damned for it. And his relationship with this theatre was was rather love hate, or there were times when he he may have loved it, and other times when he at least claimed that he you know he'd had enough of it. That's perfectly true. He came here in thirty six, thirty seven, and stayed for a season and a half, almost two seasons. Fine. Later on, many years later on, he came here as director of the National Theatre before before the present building on the South Bank was built, and the National Theatre came here only as the last resort and no, Olivia didn't like it at all. Uh, it would be fair to say that very few of the company liked the place. Um, they, 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 did, they did not want any old theatre, do you see? And they did not want any theatre of any age, they wanted a brand new theatre and when they got here they proceeded to desecrate the place. It is extraordinary. Uh, if you go to the Ovic today you see a theatre loving, lovingly restored to what it was in the 19th century. 
That was not how the National Theatre left it when they finally did leave in 1973. They, they took down the proscenium, they took down the boxes, they, there used to be six boxes and, and by the, the National Theatre did away with a lot. Uh, they painted everything a sort of sludge green, which was the fashionable stage colour of the, of the time. Uh, and they also ruined the acoustics of the place. Now, don't take my word for this. Um, you just go and read um, Laurence Olivier's um, letters uh, in the British Library, and I kept, and you can see that he was constantly answering um, uh, complaints about, about the acoustics and about this and about that, and he always admitted he ruined the place. When the National left in 1976, was that a moment when the old Vic really had to think about its identity. I mean, was, was that a possible point where you know, it had lost, lost its purpose? Because, well, there's the new, the new National Theatre on, on the South Bank. There was, there was a question whether the old Vic was going to survive. Um, first of all, it has naturally the, the, the competition of a, of a National Theatre nearby. And secondly, it was by then a very old building in a shocking state. So how did they? How could they possibly raise the, the, the money even to repair it? They did, but 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 you're right. Its future was in grave doubt. But it, it seems from reading your book that at various points in the story, the right person has come along. Oh, yes, yes, you know, yes, completely yes. out of the blue. You mentioned Ben Greet turns up, or um, Ed Mervish turns up, or, or Kevin Spacey. People sort of suddenly. Here they are, and they've got a sense of mission, and that sort of saves the day. Well, the first one to turn out was, of course, Mr. Della Torre in 1871, who went bankrupt, who, as incidentally, did, 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 did 12 other managements who tried to run this place. He's got a great history of bankruptcy, 13 and all. Well, there's that, and there's Ben Greet, that's, that's, that's fair enough. And then there's Ed Mervish. Now, that was a miracle. I mean, that brings us up to 1980 or 81, and the Old Vic really was, nobody would give me a tuppence for the Old Vic. Um, there was likely to be only, only the one officer for the Old Vic from, from Andrew Lloyd Webber, who wanted to use it to try out musicals before they went in, 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 into the West End. Because the trust was selling and it had invited sealed bids. That was the way they were going to, well, to sell it. This is true. The, 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 the trust, being obliged by the Charities Commission to sell, um, had been compelled to invite sealed bids. And there was this man, Ed Mervish, in, in, in Toronto, who had never heard of the place. And never even been to London. And never even been to London. But he was known um, to be fascinated by the theatre. He'd taken a very old theatre in Toronto and, and, and beautifully restored that. And I think it was his lawyer, about three days before the deadline um, for sending in your sealed bed, who came along to him and said, Ed, you know the old vicar's for sale? And he said, well, yeah, tell me. And he said, all right, well, let's have a go. But um, how much should we bid? And, well, nobody quite knew. But his lawyer said to him, well, he'd go find out. So he he did. He talked to his contacts in London, came back. He said, well, they're talking about, you know, sort of half a million pounds. And, and, and Mervish said, hmm. 
How much time we got left? Well, I then about two days. All right, bid. Uh, and and he, he did bid it because he was so late. He again he physically this time put his lawyer on a plane with with, with, a, with an envelope with a sealed bid in it, and. Lo and behold, Ed Mervish's bid was £50,000 more than Andrew Lloyd Webber's. The trust, faced with these two bids, was still reluctant to accept Ed Mervish's, saying, what does this Canadian know about a theatre? You know? And indeed, they did their damnedest to accept the lower bid until they were compelled by the Charities Commission to accept the higher bit from, uh, from from whomever. Ed Mervish turned out to be just sheer luck because not only did he love theatres, but he was a multimillionaire and prepared to spend millions. When he when he first came, I mean he didn't see the building till he bought it. Um, he came and looked at it and talked to architects and said he was willing to spend a million. And the architects said, well, yes, it will go away and come up with some figures. And the figures they came up with were near two million. Uh, and lo and behold, he said, do it, do it, do it. And it was they then who restored Della Torre's wonderful auditorium of 1871. Jonathan Miller had his period as artistic director. So did Peter Hall. Mm. So yeah. that kind of set the theatre back on course, really, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yes, except that, they, except that it still made a loss. And this was a loss that, the, that its governor simply, simply could, not, could not bear. And so we come across another miracle. In the late 1990s, Sally Green, who had already restored one theatre in, in, in London, took a liking um, to the Old Vic, formed an Old Vic Trust, which runs the theatre to this day. I mean, it's probably quite hard to exaggerate how important Kevin Spacey has been, really, to, to putting this theatre really back on the, on the map. I mean, is that, is that fair? Yes, it is fair. Um, it's interesting. When he came here, of course, he was known principally as a, as a, as a, as a film actor. He had, it would be true to say, a lot of theatre experience in the, in the United States, um, not in vast roles. He probably made his name um, on Broadway in the theatre in Long Day's Journey um, in Tonight, where Jack Lemon, who played the principal role, um, greatly encouraged him. But it, it took London to convince him that, he, that, that, that perhaps the theatre was, was his future, and he has without any doubt. And he stuck with it, when I, I guess some people thought that maybe it would be a bit of a flash in the pan and he'd be, he'd be off on Hollywood. Yeah, well, at the time, of course, when he came, nobody would have dared say he won't stick it for five minutes. But the Times did later say in a leading article that at the time... Uh, it had thought exactly that, 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 that he wouldn't stay. But he has stayed. Terry, finally, your book's coming out just as the old Vic embraces another new era with the end of, of Kevin Spacey's tenure and the appointment of, of Matthew Watcher. So how do you, how do you see the, the future, potentially? Well, he's interesting because um, 
He's a bit of a mix, isn't he? A very welcome mix. He's done work in the in the subsidised theatre at, at the National Theatre. He's had a Matilda, a very successful um, West End and and and, and Broadway um, uh, musical. He's a very successful film director. He wants to make the classical popular and the popular classical. Um, uh, Matthew Walsh is, is going to do very well. So optimistic about the future. I am, and so is everybody I know at the Old Vic. I was talking to Terry Coleman about his history of the Old Vic, which is out now in hardback. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll find a short video featuring Terry, which we also filmed at the Old Vic. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.